Streaming now only on Peacock. Five rich and famous international soccer stars. They have everything except love. I think girls in the past have gone for me because of what I've got. That's why we're going undercover. We're setting them up with single American women. They don't know we are famous. They don't know we are rich. And they'll have to hide their true identity. What do you need for work? I'm an ad salesman. (laughs) Oh, God. What am I doing? Love Undercover. New series streaming now only on Peacock. There's no place like the movie theater. The smell of fresh popcorn welcomes you to a full body experience while candies and sodas compete for your attention. Hoping to join you in the best seats you've reserved on Fandango. It's where movie lovers buy tickets, pick seats, and double up on rewards points all online. All that's left is to walk in, snack up, and sit back. Visit Fandango.com or download the app today for your ticket to the movies. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. It's a bit of an unusual podcast this week as all NFL teams begin their training camp season. And I say it's an unusual podcast this week because our lead guest is a Jeopardy contestant, or rather a retired Jeopardy contestant. On my trip out west to start my training camp tour, I met with James Holzhauer, the Jeopardy! champion, who made $2.4 million in 33 shows and basically took the Jeopardy! world by storm. I'll also be joined by Von Miller, the pass rusher of the Denver Broncos, who, according to Vic Fangio, the new coach of the Broncos, has got another gear he can get to in being a great NFL pass rusher. So before we get to my two guests this week, Let's just talk about one thing that sort of got under my skin uh, as I returned home from my Denver, Las Vegas beginning to the NFL training camp tour, and that is Odell Beckham Jr. GQ had a cover story with Odell Beckham Jr. this month. Uh, The contents of it were released on Monday morning this week, and as I record this on Tuesday, I've read the story. There's a lot of very interesting, compelling stuff in there. Odell Beckham is a very complex character, as everyone knows. But there's a couple of things in here that just made me shake my head. Uh, And, you know, I'll just, let's go in chronological order. So Odell Beckham Jr., August 27th, last year, signed a five-year, $95 million contract with the Giants, including a $20 million signing bonus. So he basically gets gets a check for $20 million as he signs his contract and $41 million in full guarantees. Now, there are are other guarantees in it, but a nice contract for Odell Beckham Jr. On October 7th, seven weeks, six to seven weeks after he signs the contract, he appears on ESPN with Josina Anderson and Lil Wayne sitting next to him in a pretty famous pregame show interview. In that, he says he's not sure if New York is the place for him, and he's not sure if Eli Manning is the quarterback for him, which was rather an incredible statement to make. Basically, six or seven weeks after you've cashed a check for $20 million, 
and signed up to play for this team for the next five years, less than halfway into the season, basically a month into the season, you're trashing your team. So right or wrong, it's just extremely odd. March 13, 2019, Giants trade him to Cleveland. And now 11 months after signing this new deal, the GQ story comes out in which he basically lays waste to <laughs> most people having anything to do with the New York Giants. So what really struck me in the GQ story is one quote from, o from Odell Beckham Jr. about, uh, you know, when thinking back to last year with the Giants and he's going over his all this dissatisfaction and early in the year, he said, he realized, and I quote, I can't do this anymore, end quote. So I'm left to just ask this question. I'm, I'm puzzled and sort of shocked, but I'm left to ask this question. You sign a $95 million contract with this team, and a month into signing this contract, five, six weeks into after signing this contract, you say, I can't do this anymore? I mean, why did you sign the contract in the first place? That's my first question. Why didn't you just say to the Giants at that time, listen, let's be adults about this. The 49ers want me. There are other teams that surely are going to want me. Just trade me now so we don't have to go through this charade. I mean, that just simply, <laughs> I can't do this anymore. You cash a check for $20 million, and within a month or five or six weeks, you say, I can't do this anymore. I don't get it. I don't get it at all. There can't have been something so horrible happen in, in a month or five or six weeks for you to totally change your mind. You had to know the day you signed this contract, you don't like it in New York. You want out of New York. And that's why this is so mind-boggling that, and, and, and again, this is something that with Beckham, who is a tremendous talent, uh, but, you know, he, he's, he's got to prove that he can be an absolute premier player to be able to be worth $19 million a year because that, in essence, is what the Cleveland Browns have signed up for. He needs to be a consistent, long-term player for the Browns. And I don't know right now how much you can say about his consistency as a player because think about it. Odell Beckham Jr. had three intergalactic years to start his career with the Giants. Over 1,300 yards a year, every year. Over 90 catches a year, every year. Double-digit touchdowns every year. Fantastic. Really good. Then he gets hurt in 2017. Doesn't play very much. And then in 2018, uh, he has this controversy with this ESPN interview early on. Uh, and he's just, he's pretty good but he doesn't have the kind of year he had in his first three years. And he suffers an injury in the last four weeks. Uh, I believe the Giants were, uh, were qu questioned the, 
you know, the severity of this, of this leg injury that he had. And so then he goes. So what do we have here on his resume? We have essentially three great years to start his career. Then he has an injury-plagued year. And then he has a good year uh, for a wide receiver. It's a 1,000-yard year in 12 games. That's a good to very good year. Doesn't play the last month of the season. So now, what is Odell Beckham Jr.? And, and I think that is the biggest issue that the Cleveland Browns have on their hands coming up this year. Getting consistency out of Odell Beckham Jr. Getting him out of the headlines and getting him onto the field to get max return on their investment in Odell Beckham Jr. It's going to be really interesting to watch. I think he's going to be extremely motivated to be a great player and to show everybody, including the Giants, that um, they either used him wrong or they didn't appreciate him enough. But I think Odell Beckham Jr., if you gave me a list right now, five guys in the NFL who have the most approved this year, Odell Beckham Jr. absolutely would be prominent on that list. So it's going to be very, very interesting to watch Beckham this year as he tries to take his place where it was back in 2016 as either the most feared or one of the most feared receivers in the National Football League. And now, let's get to my conversation with James Holzhauer, the Jeopardy champion. (laughs) You've got to know you're going to hear probably in the background some music. Um, I believe it's sort of 90s rock. (laughs) We did this conversation where James Holzhauer wanted to do it. He lives in Las Vegas, so I met him in Vegas, and we did this conversation in Vegas at a jack-in-the-box restaurant, interestingly, right off Jerry Tarkanian Way in Las Vegas. Many of you who are big sports fans will know that Jerry Tarkanian is the most famous coach in the history of Las Vegas, the great UNLV teams. That was Jerry Tarkanian in those days. So, you know, I basically just asked um, uh, James Holzhauer where, where he'd like to meet. And he wanted to meet here because it had what he called, and I never heard of this before, a Coke freestyle machine, which allowed him to get his favorite, his diet grape soda. Anyway, so let's hear from James Holzhauer from the Jack in the Box in Las Vegas. You know, I've come to Las Vegas, uh, and um, I came here because I'm going to interview James Holzhauer, um, who had such a great run on Jeopardy. And I came here, and we're actually talking at a jack-in-the-box restaurant right off Jerry Tarkanian Way. If you know Vegas sports, you know that we're in quite a spot. But anyway, we're meeting at this jack-in-the-box, and I, I'll be honest with you. I just spent the last two days in Denver kind of talking a lot with John Elway and Joe Flacco and Von Miller. And I said, I'm a little nervous coming to talk to James Holzhauer because <laughs> I watched him on TV every night for two months. But uh, I really appreciate you coming to join me, James. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I, I know Von gives a great press conference, so just to be compared to him is uh, kind of an honor <laughs> in that regard. So, James, you... you um, you sort of took the country by storm 
And I wonder, as you sit here now, we're, I don't know, five, six weeks removed from your run on Jeopardy. Let me just tell people who may not uh, really know who you are or know why you're going to be on my podcast, um, that in the span of 33 shows on Jeopardy, you made $2.46 million. You missed the all-time Jeopardy record by $60,000, but you did it in 42 fewer shows than than Ken Jennings did. you're the only person to ever win more than $100,000 in a Jeopardy episode. You did it six times. And you sort of increased the ratings with Jeopardy. You got everybody to watch. Um, when our crew was at the Tahoe Golf Tournament recently, Aaron Rodgers said, oh, yeah, James Holzhauer, he's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so you got, you got uh, Aaron Rodgers is a fan. Um, that's and pretty so, great. You know, Aaron is uh, one of the best ever players on Celebrity Jeopardy for those who don't watch uh, Jeopardy regularly. So, you know, yeah, I know he's a fan of the show. Yeah. I am a Bears fan, though. So, <laughs> yeah, you're a Naperville, Illinois guy. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, how, how do you think in the last few weeks, the last couple of months, how's your life changed? Uh, a lot of things have changed. I would say I've really underestimated how many people are paying attention to Jeopardy and what's out there because, you know, I figured, oh, maybe like one in five, one in ten people would recognize me, but no, it's everywhere, especially in Las Vegas. Uh, you know, I think the city's kind of embraced me, which is good. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of attention on me, which can be good, it can be bad. You know, sometimes my daughter's acting up in public, and I really wish I could uh, just become anonymous for a few minutes. <laughs> so, um, what's been the weirdest case of someone recognizing you and talking to you? Uh, there have been people, you know, I took a trip to Europe recently and in Prague and Barcelona and Lisbon, there were all people coming up to me like, hey, you're the Jeopardy guy, right? And I assume they were American tourists, but, you know, just like the, the reach is really, really impressive. So I think everybody who watches the show, and, and, and I'm going to tell you my quick little story about flying here. Uh, the guy sitting across the aisle from me is Andrew Catalan from CBS Sports, who I really didn't know. So we were talking. He says, what are you doing in Vegas? I said, well, I'm going to go see James Holzhauer, the Jeopardy guy. And he goes, oh, my God. Wow, that was amazing, blah, blah, blah. So we get ready to land. And we were talking about the show and, and all that. And we get ready to land. And one of the flight attendants says to me, you know, I, I was – overhearing your your conversation you're really going to get to interview James Holzhauer who are you and you know (laughs) I I explained and she and she goes tell him we miss him (laughs) I think a lot of people do miss you because you were such kind of a tour de force on the show and I guess I would I would just ask did you always have a strategy for how you were going to play Jeopardy yeah, you know, I started taking the online test about 13 years ago, so it kind of worked over time. You know, if they had called me that first year, honestly, I probably would have been just another forgettable contestant. But as time went on, I kind of thought like, hey, wait a minute, you know, I only got one shot at this. Maybe I need to really maximize that one shot, do everything I can right, you know, take a little time, do my studying, know what I need to know, and, you know, kind of develop a really good game plan going in. Just think about, you know, how how would a gambler approach Jeopardy to maximize his winnings? And that was basically how I was playing up there. You know, one day I was watching the show. I was watching with my wife. I live in New York City. And I said, this guy is totally unemotional about money. (laughs) 
And I think that when I would watch you do it, if you lost $20,000, you wouldn't care. And if you won $20,000, maybe deep down inside you're doing jumping jacks. I don't know. But it looked like you were unemotional about money. Well, I would say it's a lot easier when it's me doing the uh, the work than when I'm watching a player fumble away my bet at uh, the last second. But, um, yeah, you know, you kind of get the idea that money comes and goes, especially in this uh, line of work I'm in. I'm a pro sports gambler. I don't know if this has been mentioned yet. But, you know, you, you have winning days, you have losing days, but you know if you've got the right strategy, you're going to get it in the end. Um, I think the biggest question probably a lot of people who – who ended up watching Jeopardy and 14 and a half million people watched your finale on Jeopardy, um, which is like a pretty good NFL game on Sunday. <laughs> when you think about it, that's pretty bizarre to think that as many people are watching you or is watching Drew Brees duel Dak Prescott in a game. But I want to go back to the game that you lost to Emma Betcher, the librarian from Chicago, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so me, my wife, I think an awful lot of people around the country saying, wait a second, he changed his tactics. He only bet $1,399 in Final Jeopardy. And you had a history of betting the house. So I just want to refresh everybody's memory about this, and then I want you to explain why you bet what you did, okay? Entering Final Jeopardy, Emma Betcher had a lead on you. She had $26,600. You were in second place. You had $23,400. I think the key to that was she got both double Jeopardies, or both uh, daily doubles in double Jeopardy. And so she was able to build up her bank a little bit, whereas you, when you normally would get that, you'd be up to forty dollars or $50,000. So you entered Final Jeopardy at 23400 And the, the other guy on the show, Jay Sexton, had exactly $11,000 entering it. So you bet $1,399. Take me into your thought process about why you didn't bet the house. Well, you know, so some people said, oh, you, you, know, you couldn't even have covered Emma if she bet zero. But I thought there was a very low chance she's going to bet zero in this spot. You know, she's oh, she, even though she had never met me before this episode aired, she heard that I was a 32-time champion. She knew she was uh, going to have to shoot for the stars to beat me, which is why she went big on those daily double bets. And, you know, I thought to myself, okay, there's maybe like a 5% chance she's not going to bet big enough to cover me if I go all in. So what I really need to worry about are the situations where she misses, and I need to worry that third place contestant isn't going to be able to double up and overtake me. So the small bet was a way to protect against that. And then, you know, if I had gotten it right and Emma had gotten it wrong and bet zero, then, oh, well, you know, she, she played poker better than I did, I guess. <laughs> so... You, as I look at the, the sort of science of it, if you would bet your maximum, you could have ended up at exactly 46800 She ended up betting 20201 so she ended up with $1 more than you could have won at your maximum. Yeah. So by her getting that, there was no way you could have beaten her anyway. Exactly. And, yeah. you know, maybe there's some small chance that she says, okay, this guy's a pro gambler. Maybe he knows that I, that I would do this, and maybe I should try to outfox him by making a small bet. But, you know, 95% of the time, the player in first is going to make that big bet, and you just have to react accordingly. Did anything go through your mind to the effect of this? 
this thing has totally turned my life upside down. I've had enough. I've earned enough money. I've made $2.4 million. Let somebody else have the fun. I want to go back to a quiet life. Uh, certainly not. I mean, I would say that, you know, <laughs> I had a better attitude than most people who lose on the show do because, you know, I had all this, all these winnings to fall back on and I knew I had achieved this, this big goal for myself, but no, I certainly did not want to lose. Uh, I would have, I would still be playing if they would let me. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're with James Holzhauer. We're at a Jack in the Box restaurant in Las Vegas. His choice, not ours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, we're going over a little bit of Jeopardy, but I want to, um, get into your your real life your sports gambling life what's your favorite sport to bet on uh, okay so when I got started about 14 years ago I bet almost exclusively on baseball uh, I started out doing what we call futures bets where you're picking teams to win their divisions win the World Series um, which player is going to win the home run title things like that and I thought that, that was kind of like easier to approach uh, I kind of think of it like a macroeconomics versus microeconomics thing one game is kind of a micro and sometimes it's easier to measure the macro um, then after a while I started betting individual baseball games because I thought it was kind of the easiest sport to analyze mathematically it's kind of a series of one-on-one -on -one matchups instead of you know in basketball you had to kind of analyze how the players are going to work together and that can often be more complex than just thinking about it as a one-on-one -on -one thing uh, now I find that the, the baseball lines have gotten a lot tougher, and also it's 100 degrees in Vegas for most of baseball season. I like to get out, take vacations, so I do most of my focus on football and hockey. It strikes me that, and again, I don't do this, but gambling on basketball might be advantageous for this reason. Wouldn't you always want to bet on a team that's played three out of four on the road in the third game? You know, a bet against them, I mean. Yeah, well, I mean, 15 years ago, I think this would have been a great strategy, but I think that uh, nowadays... Everybody's that caught up. Nowadays, they've mostly caught up to this. You know, these kind of things are reflected in the line. Now, if you happen to know better than someone else uh, about which stars are going to rest for the game, that would be very useful information. But um, I think kind of the default now is just to assume that the starters are going to rest if it's not an important game in that spot. Um, let's go to football. I read at some point in the last couple of months that you really like in football, one of the things you think is kind of under bet or underutilized, you know, among gamblers is, is betting the two teams that get buys in the playoffs. So in, in the postseason. So what is, what is your strategy about that? And why do you believe that way? So um, t to be clear, we're talking like futures bets in the uh, in the season before the playoff field is totally set. Uh, so in other words, like in week eight. Yeah, yeah, right. And you you can kind of if you if you dig deep into the numbers, you can get an idea of what uh, which teams have the inside track at the bye weeks and the tiebreakers come in into play really importantly here. You know, there are times where. Uh, there's a decent chance that two teams will end up tied for the second and third spots, but one team has the tiebreaker locked up, and you don't always see that reflected in the odds. Um, I would say, like, if you just took six equally matched teams, you know, pretend every team is a 500 team. If you did that, then the the one seed, just by virtue of having to play only two home games, would win the conference about 35% of the time, make it to the Super Bowl. The two seed makes it about 29%, and the three seed makes it, like, 11%. So that's just an enormous gap between the two and three there and so I think that uh, oftentimes teams that have a good shot at getting the two seed but maybe the market isn't looking at it are a good bet whereas the teams that are consigned to the three and four uh, they're not going to offer you any value wasn't there a time though like 
thinking back to 2006, 2007, like the Giants w went on the road at, you know, four weeks in a row. They won a wild card, and then they won three consecutive games after winning the wild card, beat the Patriots. Is, is that thing, has it settled down more into logic now where the one and two seeds regularly win? Well, it, it sure seems like that to me, at least the past uh, five, six years, something like that. You keep seeing the, the one and two seeds advancing to the Super Bowl. Um, I mean, I can't say for certain we won't see the next 2007 Giants out there. But, you know, I remember at the start of the playoffs, the Giants were getting about 40 to one Super Bowl odds. And if you actually just parlayed the money line from their four games that they won, they would have gotten something like 200 to one. So this is what I'm talking about. You know, you don't want to take a futures ticket on that team like that. If you really think they're going all the way, just bet the money line, you know, better value. What did you do that year? Do you recall? Oh, I, uh, I was on the Patriots. <laughs> <laughs> How could you not be? They're winning every game 60 to 14. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Apparently, Michael Strahan wants to bring me on the Today Show, and I told him he, uh, he owes me some money first. <laughs> it's Good Morning America. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, that was really a fascinating year. I'll never forget that year because I, mean, I think Paul Zimmerman might have been the only person who really picked the Giants and felt great about it. Well. But my whole theory about big games like that is that the defense almost always, if you have a dominant defense, you know, how did the New York Giants beat the 49ers in 1990? How possibly, that's probably the best 49er team. How do you hold the Niners to five field goals? Or, or whatever, three field goals. And, and I look at things like that and I say, in the postseason, I'm really going to go heavy on the defense. You know, 20 years ago, I would have agreed with you, but I think that the way they've relaxed the rules and uh, just made it into an offensive passing game has kind of changed it so that, you know, you, you really want that elite quarterback in there to, to drive your team to the title. What's the Belichick factor to you? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I, it's, it's kind of already, I guess, reflected in the betting odds, but his, his you know, superior coaching is definitely evidence there you know he you you talk about there, there's people who are researching like the cutting edge of okay here's the mathematically correct thing to do here you know it involves a lot of things like passing to running backs on first downs you know just having a higher run to, or sorry heavier, heavier pass to run ratio in general going for fourth down a lot more you see the Patriots are doing all of these things that's uh you know they're really working hard maybe it's that Belichick has guaranteed job security he knows he won't get fired for doing something outside the box but whatever it is they're willing to try things that win I asked this question, I just wrote it this weekend for my column that's going to run tomorrow. I wonder which record will be broke first, if ever. DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak or a coach and a quarterback being together for 20 full seasons. What do you think? Oh, boy. <laughs> I know I've done some breakdowns on how unlikely the 56-game hitting streak is, but, I, uh, yeah, it's hard to model a thing like – I mean. You know, if the quarterback is with the team for 20 years, that, I guess, right there means that they're having a good time with that quarterback. So maybe that makes it more likely the coach would stick around. But, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Let's – I want to ask you a few things about this coming season coming up. Uh, very open-ended question. Who do you like and why? And if you're giving anybody advice this year uh, on going and putting a few bucks down on somebody – Give me a good piece of advice. Well, so in general, you know, if I had to pick a team or two to 
make it to the Super Bowl, win the Super Bowl? You know, the boring answer is the Patriots and the Rams. Everyone knows these guys are the best teams out there. But if you're looking to invest uh, in a futures ticket, I would say the, the big thing to avoid is look for look away from the teams that have all the hype surrounding them. You know, I can't believe we live in a world where the Cleveland Browns are the most hyped team in the preseason. <laughs> but they, uh, I would say they're probably the single worst bet to win the Super Bowl right now. You know, everyone's talking about how this is their year. You know, go. You mean because because the odds are, are relatively low? Exactly. You know, they. they what, what are they? What oh, are they? I, I would say like maybe 13 to 1 to win the Super Bowl. I haven't checked in a little while. And, and what would that, where would that put them? Would that put them around 10th? Oh, uh, higher than that. I think they're like, well, they're, they're the most bet team. Uh, and I'd say they're, the odds have them maybe 6th or 7th. Uh, wow. Which, yeah, awfully aggressive. You I know think. what I say about the Browns, though? I mean, think about this. You know, you got to go against John Harbaugh, Mike Tomlin. You got to go against Ben. You got to go against teams that win every year. You know, the Ravens and the Steelers. If, in my opinion, if the Browns are fortunate, they split those games yeah. with those teams. And if they're unfortunate, they might not make the playoffs. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I could definitely see a scenario like that. Um, and, you know, it pains me to say it as a Bears fan, but the Bears are getting a lot of hype this year. I'm not sure that they, uh, they quite merit that much. Um, yeah, you know, go find a team that nobody's talking about. Nobody cares about the Tennessee Titans this year. They're not a sexy pick, but they might offer you some value where the Browns and Bears wouldn't. Um, I wonder what you think about sort of the opening up of sort of the gambling floodgates around the country. It seems like now more and more people are interested, if, if only because people are betting legally now. What sort of impact do you think the opening up of gambling to different states around the country is going to have on, the, on your job? Um, it's, I think it remains to be seen. You know, I still kind of think that whatever happens, Vegas is going to be at least the national capital of the industry. And I don't think it'll be harder to get bets down. Um, you know, I've already either limited or banned. It's virtually every sports book in town. So there's, there's you're, a challenge what? there. Oh, um, so, you know, what they do here is some sports books will kick out the people who are winning altogether and others will just say, okay, you know, Joe from off the street can bet uh, 10,000 on this game, but you can bet 3,000, something like that. You know, So I, I kind of have this restriction in place all around town now anyway. Do you have any place that you can walk into a sports book and do whatever you want? Uh, I mean, not whatever I want. I can I can bet on something, but, you know, they're not going to give me the same limits that they would give you or, you know, who, well, maybe you <laughs> as a professional would also face uh, some restrictions. But, yeah, it's uh, – you know, once is that because over the years you've won a lot of money? There's that, and you know, I mean, it's a risk management thing, right? If you know this guy's a winning customer, like it can be a good idea to keep him around because okay, if he's betting this side, we'll uh, we'll adjust our odds accordingly. But you know, you don't want to just give the house away to him. I understand completely where they're coming from with this. Now, there's some companies that are a lot more tolerant of uh, the professionals than others. It, has anything changed now in? When you walk into a place, are people more wary of you after Jeopardy? Uh, I don't think that the professional attitude has changed. Now, I should say I haven't uh, really been working much since Jeopardy started, but certainly a lot more of the uh, punters in the sports book want to come talk to me. But, uh, you know, I think that virtually everyone who works behind the counter knew who I was already. Their opinion hasn't changed much. What's your – I'll ask you two other things about this season. What is your personal favorite bet? right now 
about the NFL? Uh, so I would say that's the, the big thing. There's a great new book out called The Logic of Sports Betting, if I can plug it. Uh, full disclosure, one of my friends is a co-author on this. But it, it talks about a thing called price discovery, which is, you know, the idea, like, when they first put the odds up, you know, the, the guys who come up with the odds, they didn't think too much about what the odds should be. But, you know, if you're – so we're talking like, you know, if they put up the odds for next week's football games on Sunday night, you know, that's that's not a number that's had a lot of thought go into it. But if you, you know, give people a week to bet on this, then all the people in the world who have an opinion have their chance to weigh in on it. And so the, the odds are going to become much more efficient on next Sunday morning than they are on the previous Sunday night. So in other words, bet on Sunday night. There's that. And also, uh, if you find a market that it's impossible to do what they call price discovery, like the big thing now is in-game betting. You know, they have like two minutes during commercial break to put up these odds and collect bets on stuff. And they're not always going to do a good job of it, you know. So if you are really paying attention to the game and you're sharp at math, you can kind of come up with an idea of where the end game odds should be. And, you know, that's that's the kind of thing where they make mistakes and you have time to pounce on it. Um, I want to know, I read somewhere that you said, or, or somebody reported that you were going to give a lot of your money away. Did you? Are you? What would you give your money away to if you did? Uh, so, yeah, it's kind of an ongoing process. I have given a bunch away already um, to a variety of groups. I'm gonna have you gave <laughs> some to Alex Trebek's charity, didn't you? That I was really a, a I did, yeah. Um, my hometown of Naperville, Illinois, was having a uh, pancreatic cancer walk, and they wanted me to be there. But, you know, I had already uh, a pre-existing commitment that day, but I did uh, send them some money. And, I, you know, I kind of just wrote as an aside, this is for Alex Trebek, and then the, the story just blew up. <laughs> it was incredible. But, um, yeah, I've given to a lot of causes uh, they're largely focused on the Vegas area and particularly children's things homeless teens uh, groups that kind of get students to graduate high school and you know set them off on the right track things like that that provide for uh, you know they I, I love Las Vegas but the schools here are not great they they really could use a helping hand and um, you know anyone out there who's listening and able to give to the schools here we could we could really use the help they got great kids here who just need a little assist is there a particular charity that you've donated to that you think is valuable that you want to give a shout out to? Uh, sure. There's a big one called Project 150. They do uh, Project 150? Yes. Uh, so they're project150.org 150.org I should say um, and they focus on homeless teens in the Las Vegas Valley. You know there's over 6,000 uh, teenagers who don't have a place to sleep at night you know they sometimes they couch surf sometimes they just you know go where they can um, they need clothes they need food, they need school supplies, and this place gives it all to them free of charge. All you have to do is show the, an ID that says you're going to school, and they, you know, give the kids everything they need to fit in at school. Did your parents once tell you that you're wasting your time, you know, studying sports <laughs> statistics? Uh, they did, yeah. And um, <laughs> How old were you? Uh, well, let's see. This this was kind of a thing throughout my life. Uh, I got the when I was ten, I got the you're wasting your time studying sports statistics. When I uh, was twenty, it was you're wasting your time gambling uh, on poker. And then when I was twenty four, it was you're wasting your time gambling on sports. <laughs> then when I was thirty, it's you're wasting your time studying for Jeopardy. So <laughs> I, I hope I've uh, proven all these things wrong. <laughs> James Holzhauer, I really appreciate you talking. And, and you know, I think that um, your story is really cool because you're just a guy. And you kind of decided that you were going to have a philosophy about this show. And if it worked, great. If it didn't work, that's the way life goes. And you really attacked it. 
and I think that's why so many people around the country have identified with you. I think it's, uh, you know, that some people just don't realize, hey, this, this game could be played this way if we uh, took off our blinders and, you know, just analyzed it from the start. No, we don't think about playing it just slightly differently than anyone else has ever done it. You turn the game on its head, you figure out the, the way to play, and it doesn't matter if it's completely different than what everyone else is doing. James Olsauer, thank you from the from the bowels of the uh, Jack in the Box restaurant <laughs> on Jerry Tarkanian Way. This has been a lot of fun. It's a great plug for Jack in the Box, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so really good stuff, interesting stuff from James Holzhauer. And I think those who have been killing him, those Browns fans who've been killing him because they view what he said about the Browns and the Browns being a bad bet, it's only a bad bet in the context that he thinks – the Browns being 15 to 1 or 16 to 1 to win the Super Bowl when there are longer odds for teams like the Chargers and the Cowboys and the Seahawks. Um, I think he just believes that that's fairly silly. But my thanks to James Holzhauer for giving up an hour of his life uh, to come and meet with me at the Jack in the Box. So now let's go to Denver. Uh, where on one of the early days in training camp, I sat down with Von Miller, um, the record-setting, and hopefully, in his eyes, big record-setting, because he does want to be the all-time sack king in the NFL. Uh, met with Von Miller to talk to him about a lot of things, and here's my conversation with the Denver pass rusher. Von, you have really done a lot with your life that, it's interesting. A lot of people try to do multiple things outside of football. Then they don't take care of football maybe as much as they should. Mm -hmm. You have done a lot of things about football while taking care of football. You've done a lot this offseason with your new head coach, Vic Fangio, mm -hmm. to try to up your you know pass rush game and all that. So what's the secret to being able to do all the things that you do? I mean, I, I do a lot of stuff good, but... um. The thing I do the best is play football, you know, and uh, and I'm a great teammate as well. But so I just try to I just try to stay in that in that world and just branch off of that, you know. If I'm not uh, if I'm not good at it, then I always circle back around and, and come back to football, you know. But football is uh, what has allowed me to do all of this stuff. Being a great teammate is, is what has allowed me to do all this stuff. So that's a main priority in my life. People who are big horse racing fans saw you doing some hosting work for NBC mm -hmm. at the Kentucky Derby. What was that like? How did you prepare for that? Oh, it was incredible. Um, it was it was it was a great experience. Um, I've went to the Kentucky Derby before, and um, so I've been able to, you know, to participate in the in the big spectacle and you know see all the horses and see all the pe see all the people. But um, to come back in that fashion and do a, a lifestyle correspondence piece was life changing. Um, I've did a little bit of work. Um, you know, see, uh, I did work with CBS. You know, um, right before the um, Super Bowl. Did the uh, pregame show. Had a little bit of practice. I get a lot of practice here with the Broncos. You know, we got a lot of media guys that come in and out of this uh, place. We got great media relations guys here. So I was uh, I was prepared for you know the opportunity. And you know I had a great um, I had a great co-host as well. You know Dylan Dreyer. She was amazing. She just kind of led me into certain subjects, and I just did my thing. Are you? Uh, is it at all hard for you to combine your lives? Um, no, you just got to find something. You talking about me and Dylan? No, I'm talking about to do everything that you do. No, I just, I just try to be the best fun I can possibly be. Um, I feel like, um, 
you know, I'm, I'm versatile a lot of stuff. You know, I raise chickens. You know, I'm a part-time comedian in the locker room. You know, I'm a great teammate. You know, <laughs> you know, I'm a jokester with my coaches, and I and I rush the passer. So I just try to be the best vomit I could possibly be. What's the best prank you've ever pulled on a teammate in a locker room, college or pro? Uh, a lot of pranks. Um, I got a lot of pranks, but I tell you the best prank that was pulled on me. My rookie season here. It was my rookie season here. Wesley Woodyard and Lonnie Paxton, they put um, they put uh, fingerprint dust. They put this fingerprint powder in my shoes, and um, as I started running and stuff, it rubbed into the socks and it rubbed into my toenails. And I didn't know anything about it. It started to rain, and um, you know my feet get wet. And I see I look at my shoes and it's like these blue bubbles coming out of my shoes. I'm like, man, my my shoes are like falling apart they're, they're evaporating right here i'm looking at them and i go inside the locker room i take off my shoes and it's just blue i take off my socks and my toenails are blue and i'm like i started trying to rub it off and it's not it's not coming off my my toenails stayed blue for about three weeks it was it was it was it was crazy how did you get to the bottom of it it was crazy you know um whenever i came in you know they had whenever you pull a prank off like that it gets real messy so they had let their equipment staff know what was going on so they was kind of you know waiting around my locker for me to take my shoes off and you know the main guys that were laughing you know it was lonnie paxton you know it was wesley Woodyard, and they're right here by my locker so you know i just uh they had to be the copers they might not have been them but i'm pretty sure to this day that it was did there. you get revenge and was revenge best served cold no i i didn't i didn't get revenge you know I, back then i was just kind of like a you know easy going team and i laughed it off you know but thinking about it i should i should have just tackled both of those guys <laughs> uh we're with vaughn miller englewood colorado home of the denver broncos vaughn um you have started this thing. You've done it now, what, three years, mm -hmm. the pass rush camp? Mm -hmm. So I noticed this year that the mm -hmm. offensive linemen now have started a pass protection camp, yeah. an offensive line camp. So I wonder, is that in response to what you were doing? I don't know. I, I really don't know, And uh, which, is, which is all good. You know, I'm, I'm all for, you know, these type of camps. Um, whenever we started the pass rush summit, I thought about it like, you know, the wide receivers, and corners should do this. It's it's perfect for those guys because when we go out there, you know we can't really run around. We can't really do much. But a wide receiver in the corner, they can learn so much and get so much from it. But um, you know, back on the other hand, you know I I did the camp. I really didn't think about like, you know who would do this, who would do that. I just wanted to give back to the game that has given so much to me. Um, you know I'm all for you know offensive camps. It's just Trent Brown. Jeez, I, this guy Trent Brown. Okay, explain the Trent Brown story. This guy Trent Brown. He he was one of my favorite offensive linemen, right? You know I've I've known him for a long time. Since big he, tackle, big tackle yeah, since yeah. he was with the you know the 49ers and the Patriots. You know I my very now first the time, Raiders. Yeah, now the Raiders. My very first time seeing him, I was like, hey, this guy's gonna be good. You know, um, I, I said he was gonna be good. Everybody, you know, they they jumped on it. You know, just one of my favorite offensive linemen. I'm a, I'm a fan of his size. I'm a fan of his game. So I invited him to the pass rush summit the very first when he came. You know, the second one he wasn't able to come. And then his third one, he came to the pass rush summit, right? And, um, you know, he gave some pointers. You know, he gave, gave a little bit of pointers. We talked a little bit. But about a month later, I see him at this offensive line camp, too. And I'm like, bro, like, what is going on? Like, so you're going to come to our, our pass rush summit and take all the knowledge that you learned. Because he was the only offensive lineman there. He come to the our pass rush summit, get all the knowledge, then go to this, I don't know what they call it, the offensive line, mastermind, I don't know what they call it. But he goes there and I see the footage and he's just pointing out stuff and doing this and really, 
really coaching up the class. I said, you know what, Trent, you cannot come back to the pastor center anymore. <laughs> you're still my guy, but you can't come back no more. <laughs> uh, Vaughn, you, at this point, you've played eight years in the NFL. Mm -hmm. You got 98 sacks. And I'd done a little research on this because it's no secret. When you retire from football, you'd like to hold the all-time sack mm -hmm. record, wouldn't you? Yeah, I, I would like to. Yeah. So I looked it up, and Bruce Smith entering his age 30 season, which you're entering right now, Bruce Smith had 92 sacks. Mm -hmm. So in other words, he got 108 sacks after turning 30. And now to break his record, you'll need to get 103 sacks because mm -hmm. you've got 98 sacks. Mm -hmm. You'll need to get 103 sacks basically in your 30s. Doable? Um, it's it's encouraging. It's, it's definitely encouraging. You know, um, you know, Coach Fangio. We got a new we got new leadership here, and he says, you know, don't make any you know proclamations. And uh, I'm I'm all for that. You know, I got a great coach here. Um, one of the best coaches that I've ever had in my life. You know, we have had great leadership here, but he's an outside linebacker's guy. You know, he's coached a lot of great ones. I want to be his greatest, you know, his greatest product yet. And, um, you know, I feel like this is a great season. You know, we've already adjusted some stuff that'll, that'll make me a better pass rusher. And um, I just is that is that technique? Is it just, mental? It's just, it? um, you know, it's the little things like uh, like Coach Fangio says, you know, um, when you make the when you really focus on the little things, it turns into, you know, a, a change of game. It, it turns into a whole different athlete. And um, I've bought into that and I've bought into uh, my outside linebackers coach as well. Coach Staley, you know, he stays up super late, you know, uh, thinking about how to make me and Chubb better. You know, I can I can really appreciate that. So I've bought into whatever those coaching points that they give me, and I'm just going to lay it out there on the football field. You've met Bruce Smith, mm -hmm. and he's actually been to your camp, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Okay, so what do you think about his game, and what did you learn from him, if anything? I mean, I, I can imagine mm -hmm. if I'm Bruce Smith. Bruce Smith loves that record. Mm -hmm. You know, I yeah. bet deep down inside Bruce Smith yeah. is saying, Hey, hope you have a great career. Hope you get 199 yeah. sacks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but you know, Bruce, if you if you if you've ever met the guy, you know, he's he's so soft spoken. You know, he dropped all type of knowledge. He didn't hold back anything. He kind of remind me. He kind of reminds me of Demarcus. You know, he has that same. Demarcus Ware. He, he yep. reminds me of Demarcus Ware. He has that same vibe about him. You know, I'm an open book. You know, I'm gonna give you all the knowledge in the world. You still gotta go out and do it. And um, that's what the pastor summit is all about. You know, we um, drop knowledge. We um, you know, we learn from each other. You know, it's guys that come to the camp where they, they go out and perform. And there's never in a million years would I be able to perform and, and do what those guys do. It's some stuff that I can do. And whatever we can pick up from each other, that's what we take and put into our games. It's um, so many different uh, styles of pass rushes, so many different body size and body types. and Everybody gets to the quarterback in different ways. So you just got to find what makes them great and how that can, you know, um, how can you, you know, put that into your game. Bruce Smith, his game, he was, he was so huge. He was so huge. He was so big. He was almost bigger. He he was bigger than the offensive lineman. He would hit guys with the side swipe, and if he gets the hands, then it's a quick, you know, dip around to the quarterback. If he didn't get the hands, the quarterback pulls him back. He just come with the rip, and he just ride the he ride the offensive lineman all the way back. You know, he was so big that he could just lean into the guy and run straight into the quarterback. You know, it was a different game then, and you know, he was way bigger than me. You know, um, I'm more a get off guy, more get off. You know, um, stutter, stutter, bull, and mix it up, and kind of, I kind of play chess with guys and just look for my opening. You know, everybody has their own way of getting it. You just gotta find out what uh, makes you great, and just, and just focus in on that. Without being overly dramatic or overly cliche, the pass rush is a chess game, mm -hmm. isn't it? Because 
if you're across the, 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 the line from a guy and you're rushing 65 times, let's just say, mm-hmm. you can't do the same thing every no, time. You can't. you can't do the same thing half the time. Yeah. You have to throw change-ups. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, these guys get paid, too. You know, these guys, these guys getting paid close to, you know, 20 million, too, as well. You know, um, these guys uh, are, are incredibly gifted as well. You know, and if you look at it, you know, I've always been a fan of offensive linemen. I, I tell our offensive line coach, Coach Munchak, you know, all the time, when I grow up and if I ever go into coaching, I don't want to coach defense. I want to coach the offensive linemen. They have such a hard <laughs> job. They do. They really do. They have such a hard job. They, they really got to pitch no hitters, you know, every single game they go out. And if they have a mistake, you know, it could lead to sack force fumble, game-changing plays, all of that stuff. You know, so I, I really have, you know, um, kind of admired the offensive line play. I can play 98 snaps, 60 snaps, and be <laughs> people not even notice me. And then the last two plays of the game, get two sacks. It's like, oh, all right, you know, Vaughn saved us. You know, it's just a two totally different games. So, you know, I just got to find a way to get in there, you know, and they got to find a way to stop me for the whole game. I'm going to end with this. When you watch quarterbacks play so well late in their careers, mm-hmm. like Drew Brees at 40 and Brady is turning 42 this year. So uh, do you at all marvel at that? Are you shocked that quarterbacks can play that well? Or do you think that there are forces within this game that are helping quarterbacks because they're not taking the physical abuse that they used to take no. 15, 20 years ago? No, no, it's, I don't think that's it. These guys are, these guys are taking – care of their body beyond, you know, in different ways that we have ever seen quarterbacks do it. You know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Brady, unless we're playing him. <laughs> yeah. Unless we're playing him. I've been around the guy. I've seen him. I've seen him work. I've seen him grind. And, um, you know, quarterbacks are just not just not doing that. Drew Brees is, is the same way. You know, they're taking care of nutrition or getting sleep. They're, they're um, with their body work guys, you know, the whole nine. Whatever it takes to make them better, that's what they're doing, and that's why they're playing into those 40s. And I think it's extremely encouraging as well because if they can do it, why not us? You guys going to be good this year? I, I think we're going to be great. Um, I think we're going to be a good team. And I, I'm not just, you know, saying that. You just got to re- really look at the pieces. We got great coaches, you know, from top to bottom. Um, we got we got great players from top to bottom, and that equals success. Um, you know, 95% of the time. We still got to go out there and play. We still got to do our thing. But we just lean on our coaches. Our coaches have been experienced. We got, I don't know, two head coaches on the squad right now. Um, we got one of them that's coaching, you know, the offensive line. Um, we got our head coach. He's coaching, he's coaching the defense as well. And, I mean, it's just encouraging. You got all this experience. You got all these guys. They've been in so many different positions. Coach Fenzio, he's, he's so smart. And if you got a smart head coach, you got a smart team. And uh, you still got to go out there and play. But... Great coaches and, and, and great players usually equal wins. So I'm, I'm just going to go with those odds. Von Miller, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. appreciate you, Peter. My thanks to James Holzhauer and Von Miller. Really interesting stuff from both of them. I want to direct you to a couple other things uh, in this NBC family of podcasts and um, of content. Chris Sims Unbuttoned this week. This podcast has Travis Kelsey and Tony Romo. Um, I really like how Chris conversates with people, which is an old Randy Mossism. <laughs> but I just like how he talks to people instead of just saying, okay, I got five questions for you. Let's go. I'm going to interview you. He basically has a conversation with these guys, and I really enjoy 
how he interacts with players. So Chris Sims unbuttoned, Travis Kelsey, Tony Romo, really good stuff. Also, the PFT Live show returns next Monday. That's July 29, 7 to 11 a.m. Mike Florio and Chris Sims co-hosting. That will feature some daily content from my training camp tour uh, throughout this summer. I will rejoin the show when uh, when I exit my training camp tour in late August. Uh, I'll be back every once a week during the football season. Uh, I will be uh, in my apartment in New York. Luckily, happily, uh, NBC is going to put a camera in my apartment. And so I'll be uh, appearing uh, basically uh, in a bathrobe uh, with a giant glass of orange juice every every week. Um, just kidding. But um, I'll see you on that show uh, starting in late August or early September. I'll let you know that. But for now, uh, follow my training camp stuff uh, in my Football Morning in America column on NBCSports.com and ProFootballTalk.com. And also you can follow my exploits. A lot of video stuff will be on ProFootballTalk and NBCSports.com. Uh, I really look forward to this trip. I leave on uh, Thursday again. I've been home for a few days. Leave on Thursday again. We'll start at the Jets. And uh, just to let you know, I'll be doing my podcast from a couple of these training camps. Uh, we'll just see where we get good content. But I'm going to start off in order at the Jets on Thursday uh, of this week. Then I'll go to Baltimore Friday, Philadelphia Saturday. We got a long drive uh, that evening. So we'll go to the Panthers training camp on Sunday. Hopefully have some good information about Cam Newton and how he is doing. Uh, Then on Monday, uh, we will be at the Falcons training camp, Flowery Branch, Georgia. And finally, late day evening Tuesday, we will be in Tampa to see the the marriage between Bruce Arians and Jameis Winston. So we've got a lot of content coming up and a lot of fun coming up as we prepare for the NFL's 100th season. And we do it both at Football Morning in America, my column on Monday, and on this podcast, the Peter King Podcast. Good to have you with me, and I'll see you right here 